So the content warning we've been issuing with each episode so far still applies today. This episode includes mentions and discussion of suicide, miscarriage, infidelity, rape, the death of children, and the death of a spouse. And it's Suicide Prevention Awareness Month, so this gives us double the reason to just take a moment to say, if you or someone you love is struggling with suicidal thoughts, uh, you're not alone and you matter, and you're very much wanted here. So if you need somewhere to reach out, there are a few places that you can do that. In the U.S., the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline can be reached at 1-800-273-8255, and you can also text to 741741. In the U.K., you can text 85258, and in Canada, you can text 6868. Six, eight. So take care of yourself. Be kind to yourself. We love you. Absolutely. And just add, if you do want to call in the UK, you can call Samaritans on 116123. Thanks for adding that. So that kind of the US, uh, UK equivalent, not the US. <laughs> This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. listeners welcome to episode 15 mary shelley part three when we left off last time mary percy and jane were in holland waiting for their boat back to england things were tense between the travelers what was supposed to be a romantic elopement had become a comedy of errors which is actually never fun to live through and tensions were high making matters more complicated mary had just discovered she was pregnant at 16 and things don't get better from here i'm sorry to say not for a while anyway So do something soothing like pet your dogs, because the only way out is through. To kind of zoom back in to where we were last time, it's September of 1814. And as usual with Mary's sailing adventures, the sea is super stormy. It seems like any time she wants to cross the English Channel or sail, it's a bad sailing trip. And she has bad seasickness to boot. The trio is also basically out of money. If you remember, they had about 30 pounds left in Switzerland. Uh, That's pretty much gone by now. But Percy manages to sweet-talk the captain into letting them pay once they reach England. Easy enough, right? Except Harriet has emptied Percy's bank account in his absence. Uh, To which I say, you go. This really reminds me of a song called Hit 'Em Up Style by the Carolina Chocolate Drops, which we'll link in the show notes. Percy wants to go confront her about it in usual Percy style, but Mary has a better idea, which is to ask some old friends for a loan. But there's an issue here. So remember last episode when we said that Mary Jane and Harriet both went on letter writing campaigns? 
It seems that Percy, Mary and Jane had been cancelled by London society in the aftermath of their elopement. Nobody wanted anything to do with them. They are over. (laughs) So Percy went to have that confrontation with Harriet after all. Nobody really knows what happens in that room. Wouldn't it be great to be a fly on the wall? But after a while, Shelley somehow comes out with the money. But this was a case of one problem solved and 99 left over, uh, because Percy's still in all kinds of debt all around London and probably beyond London. And even if he has a little bit of money, London still hates him and Mary. Mostly Mary, because misogyny and the patriarchy. (laughs) Um... Mm. Yay! So Percy sets Mary and Jane up with living quarters and then disappears for long stretches of time, basically trying to make himself a harder target for people to find and thus try to collect funds from. He can't even live with Mary while she's pregnant for most for most of her pregnancy because he's dodging those debt collectors and trying not to end up in debtor's prison. Um... Increasingly angry and desperate about their ongoing rejection from society, Percy writes to Mary's dad, demanding an explanation for his uh, silence and standoffishness, I guess. Shouldn't Godwin be on board with this, basically is what the letter is saying. Aren't they simply putting his principles into practice? But Godwin doesn't seem to see the parallel between his principles and his daughter's actions and refuses to have anything to do with any of them. So, Percy is, at this point, all Mary has left, unless she counts her sister, which I don't think she does. Oh, God. Poor Mary. It was bleak. Yeah. While Mary is basically on bed rest because of the pregnancy, a ton of things happen. So, Harriet gives birth to Percy's son and heir. As you remember, Harriet is his wife at this point. She's his wife. I don't know. Jane starts going by Claire, partly to spite her mother and partly to fit in as one of Wollstonecraft's true daughters. Also, she forgets her own birthday and adopts Wollstonecraft's as her own. So Jane, for the rest of this episode, is going to be referred to as Claire. It's a little bit confusing, but let's go with what she would have wanted. Claire and Percy are probably getting it on while Mary's sick and pregnant. Percy encourages her to get it on with his BFF, Thomas Hogg. Um, She does try that. She's open-minded, which I'm sure everyone is aware of by now. But half-hearted at the same time. (laughs) Yeah, she'll she'll give it a go for Percy, but she's not really into it. On March 6th, 1815, she has a girl eight weeks early, and the baby unfortunately dies 13 days later. She actually writes to Hog for comfort because Percy is an emotional jellyfish. I I coined that phrase because jellyfish don't have bones and if you try to lean on them, they will sting you. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. (laughs) Sorry, I'm just giggling. (laughs) No, that's that's wonderful. That should be in common parlance. Um, Yeah, turns out Hog isn't really helpful either. Who would have guessed? Hmm. And right around this time, Shelley's grandfather dies, which means he does come into a little bit of money. So he gets £1,000 a year. And of that, he allots £200 to Harriet and her two children. Amid that whirlwind of activity, um, a lot of which was highly stressful and distressing, 
Shelly decides to magnanimously take Mary on a trip to Salt Hill. I'm going to just guess at this pronunciation. Near Slough? Perfect. Yay! <laughs> that is the first time Slough and Perfect have ever been used in a <laughs> sentence together. All that time reading John Bunyan as a child has finally paid off. <laughs> <laughs> Um, which is about 20 miles west of London, for those of you who are, like me, not that familiar with UK geography. And miraculously, the two leave Claire behind. Milestone moment in their relationship. <laughs> so Claire is furious, predictably, uh, but without her around, Mary and Percy seem to get out of their funk. They finally reconnect... Percy is able to see the woman beyond the the pregnancy and the new mother a little bit. Um, but when they get back to London, Claire is waiting, and boy is she upset. Blowout fights ensue. Screaming matches, perhaps an ultimatum even. And Charlotte Gordon writes, quote, By May, Mary was no longer even able to utter Claire's name. She referred to her stepsister as Shelley's, quote, friend and was terrified that she was going to become a, quote, deserted thing no one cares for, end quote. Gordon continues, In her journal, she kept obsessive track of the time the two of them spent together. Shelley walked with his friend or talked with the lady, end quote. Ultimately, it's decided that they need to send Claire away. Shelley rented her a cottage in Devon, and because of this, Gordon surmises that Claire may have been pregnant, because otherwise, why wouldn't they just send her packing back to her family? It's sort of a classic get-your-pregnant-mistress-out-of-town move to rent them a cottage somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> so Mary notes her relief at Claire's absence in a letter to Fanny, and also in the journal that she resumes. And she's also celebrating her revived connection with Percy. But their relation begins to flag into listlessness. They both feel tired and sick. Biographers speculate that this might have been because they were vegetarian, which at the time meant they ate a lot of vegetable fritters and possibly not much else. Um, I mentioned Percy's vegetarianism in the last episode. Um, I do understand that there's historical differences in nutrition and what people had access to, but at the same time... I mentioned also having been a vegetarian for a number of years and I'm now a vegan and I'm so sick of this trope. Yeah, same. I, um, I've i been a vegetarian for a, a couple of years as well and just discovered I'm lactose intolerant this year. <laughs> Hooray! So uh, I'm basically all but vegan, like I'll still eat honey and other things like that. But um, yeah, it's possible to get all the nutrition you need. There are so many kinds of so many sources of protein in the plant world, for example. And yeah, but um, there's a cool episode of a podcast called The Feast, which is a history podcast about food and is amazing. Um, and it's an episode about Victorian vegetarianism that sort of looks through some Victorian cookbooks and takes a closer look at what sorts of thing they were eating. And a lot of the recipes are like fritters, <laughs> lots of sugar. It's basically like, yeah, you're basically eating like pastry and, uh, and pasta, like, you know, that kind of vegetarian, the, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, they're eating what, um, what omnivores think vegetarians eat yeah, nowadays. Yeah. I'm just, ex I'm just especially 
salty on this subject as a chronically ill vegetarian who was told for ages that I wasn't actually ill, I just had deficiencies for being vegetarian. Oh, that's frustrating. Yeah, so basically by this point, they've both become vegetarians and they've given up sugar to boycott slavery and colonial sugar plantations, which... Woo! Yeah, these are some great choices that they're making. That sounds sarcastic, but I... Mm -hmm. Yeah, fully support that. Um... Another reason why Percy in particular might have been listless is because he's diagnosed with consumption at this point, better known today as tuberculosis or TB. Mm-hmm. And uh, that diagnosis and the symptoms associated with it are going to crop up for the rest of this episode. So maybe we'll link to something about tuberculosis in the Victorian period in the show notes. Yeah, so there's a really cool podcast that I like called This Podcast Will Kill You, where two disease ecologists basically traced the history and then the current status of certain infectious diseases. And they do have an episode on tuberculosis, which I will also link in the show notes. I love how we get recommendations for slash from each other as well as for everyone else. Yes, yeah. I think that's one of the amazing things about podcasting and the audio community in general. (laughs) So, to get back to our story, in June of 1815, Mary and Percy moved to Bishopsgate. There, they experience some financial stability for the first time in their relationship. They hire a cook and some servants, uh, which is huge, considering, you know, not too long ago they were traipsing around Europe, broke, basically, uh, and Percy was dodging deck collectors. <laughs> Percy dived into his work here, occasionally forgetting to eat and checking in with Mary about it. And amid all of this, Mary is reading Percy's work and workshopping with him on it. Um, Their conversations are shaping his ideas, she's learning Greek, and she's always, always reading something. Yeah, so let's just echo something Charlotte Gordon says in her biography of Wollstonecraft and Godwin. Yeah, let's say Godwin, because she's Godwin at this point. People are always super keen to discuss what an influence Percy must have been on Mary, but the reverse is almost never brought up. That Mary's ideas, her intimate knowledge of her mother and father's work, her own well-read erudition, all influenced Percy. In fact, she's probably the reason he decided to pursue poetry instead of philosophical and political prose. Yeah, and um, we don't go super in depth on all of the sort of projects that they workshop with each other on in this episode, but some of them kind of come up in passing. But throughout the whole period we're discussing in this episode, Mary and Percy are always working on their own projects, and it's one of the ways that they're close, that they trade projects, and they're really sort of like a critique group for each other. And no matter what's going on in their emotional and social lives, Percy really respects Mary's opinion. Yeah, I mean, this is something that happens throughout the period, right? It's a big part of my thesis, is that all of these communities are reciprocal and the men are influencing the women, but also the women are influencing the men, and we only ever hear about one side of that equation. Right, yeah. Or very rarely do we hear about the other side. Yeah. So just keep that in the back of your mind uh, amid all of the sort of more domestic things we'll be thinking about. There are constant writing projects. We'll link to some, I guess, timelines of these writing projects um, so you can sort of see how they match up. 
constant intellectual, I wanted to say trade-off, but that's not the right word, exchange in the background of the more kind of workaday concerns that come up. So the two of them continue happy in this bubble of domestic bliss and intellectual effort until on January 24th, 1816, their first son, William, was born. And even though they named him after Mary's dad, Godwin did not relent in his decision to sort of cut Mary off and never speak to her again. Even though they wrote to him about it, too. He's just like, nope, none of you exist. I refuse to engage. In March of that year, Claire came brazing back into their lives. Uh, no baby in tow, so, you know, that earlier comment is really just speculation. Um, the sisters make some sort or semblance of peace, perhaps because Claire was after bigger fish these days. In her absence, she decided that Lord Byron was worth uh, pursuing, and she was darned if she wasn't going to go after him with all of her might. <laughs> with all her formidable tenacity, Claire set about making herself intriguing to Byron, leveraging her stepfather's reputation and her connection to Shelley. Byron, fresh out of his marriage to Anne Isabella Milbank, Ada Lovelace's mother, and reeling from the public's reaction, her heartbroken revelation that Byron had been knocking boots with his own sister, allowed Claire to distract him. Briefly. Long story short, they have a fling. But a fling was not enough for Claire. She wanted, like always, what Mary had, or its closest equivalent, or something even better. <laughs> but Byron... This was not his first go-around with the fairer sex. Um, I've written this was not his first rodeo. <laughs> Apparently, I'm feeling my roots. No, that's a, that's a phrase I absolutely would use as well. Yeah, this is not his first rodeo. Um, <laughs> Claire managed to sort of tempt him, coerce him, not really, I don't know, he does it of his own free will, into further encounters um, by sort of dangling Mary in front of him on a stick. So didn't he want to meet her famous sister, Mary Wollstonecraft's daughter? Um, he did, in fact, and so he came over for an afternoon and chatted with Mary, and then he headed to Geneva without so much as a goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> but Claire wasn't done machinating, I'm sure that, that should be a word, and eventually her efforts culminated in an infamous trip. So in April of 1816, Percy, Mary and Claire headed to Switzerland by way of France to meet up with Byron and his friend and physician Polidori. Because it worked out so well the first time they went to France together and to Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there, Claire entirely failed to win Byron over. But Shelley and Byron became friends. Shelley asked Polidori to vaccinate William. Polidori fell in love with Mary. And because the days were dreary in that year without a summer and boredom and bickering set in among the group, something momentous happened. The writers decided to have a ghost story writing competition. Mary based hers on a dream and some folklore she'd picked up a few years earlier. You might remember what this is. In fact, she was the only one in the group who completed the assignment. Byron wrote a fragment of a poem about a vampire. Polidori would later expand on it in a short story titled The Vampire which some consider the first modern vampire story. But Mary found herself writing a whole novel, and one that would change the world. I think you know the one we're talking about. <laughs> if you don't, you were seriously sleeping in your high school English classes, weren't you? <laughs> also, last episode when we mentioned a certain castle with a name mm -hmm. that might 
rhyme with Crankenshine. <laughs> but what exactly brought about that infamous writing contest in the first place, you ask? Well, on June 15th, Byron and Polidori were standing on a snow-covered wall as Mary approached, and Byron noted that a gentleman shouldn't let a low wall stop him from offering his arm to a lady he liked, because Byron likes to uh, instigate things, and he knows about Polidori's crush. So Polidori jumped the wall, slipped, and hurt his ankle, and the contest was invented at least in part as a way to raise his spirits. Because not only had he harmed his ankle, he had harmed his pride. This is another instance where there are a few overlaps between people and Shelley. A, we've got another hurt ankle, like Shelley's was when he had to mm-hmm. ride the donkey through France. Um, mm-hmm. But also, Byron is absolutely a person that I would enjoy from a distance, but not want to be up close with. Oh, definitely. Ugh. They call him mad, bad, and dangerous to know for a reason. <laughs> Byron would be like a YouTube prankster these days, I think. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Anyway. (laughs) A few days later, on the 18th, Polidori worked up the nerve to confess his love to Mary, who kindly said that she thought of him as a brother, and a little brother, actually, but nothing more. Now, Polidori is several years older than Mary, so that's a little bit um, frustrating, for him, I imagine, to be considered a little brother, but it also tells you something about the way Mary carries herself in society. She thinks she's very mature and she thinks of herself as older and maybe even wiser, and that would be justified, I think, in a number of ways. And I have linked to Polidori's diary in the show notes for this episode as well, so you can take a look. Not long after this, um, this is just a fun fact. Renowned gothic novelist Matthew Gregory Lewis joined the party. I just thought I'd throw that out there if there are any fans of The Monk listening, and um, you should take a look at that novel if you get the chance. It's one of the sort of foundational gothic novels, and it's a pretty fun read (laughs) if you like gothic things. (laughs) So Mary... While this is all going on, Mary kept working on her novel, and the group had a number of outings that directly inspired scenes and settings. In between outings, she continued studying Greek with Percy, walked and read Italian with Polidori, and played with baby William. Here at last was a measure of peace. Meanwhile, Claire discovered that she was pregnant with Byron's baby. Byron did not give a single heck about this news. Percy tried to reason with him on Claire's behalf, and when that didn't work, decided to settle an allowance on her. Half believing himself, Byron claimed that the baby was actually Percy's, but Percy eventually convinced him the baby was Byron's, and Byron threatened to take it from Claire and have it raised by his sister and lover Augusta. Claire managed to keep the baby by promising to pose as its aunt, but Byron knew he could take the child whenever he wanted. There were no laws protecting Claire at this point. Yeah, and I think we mentioned um, probably way back in season one in either the Wilkie Collins or the Mary Elizabeth Braddon episodes, um, that a lot of the the first laws really protecting women's rights in any way, but also the rights of a mother and her children, didn't really come into play until just ballpark the 1850s. So we're a long way out from that still. Yeah. This fight over the child with Byron had taken the joy out of Switzerland, so Percy, Mary, and Claire made plans to return to England in August of 1816. 
even though Percy had come into a bit of an inheritance, uh, his lenders were still swarming London waiting for payments. So Shelley decided to deposit the sisters in Bath and head to London to see about setting things straight or straighter, which I suspect really just means a bunch of talk and no actual money changing hands. Yeah, probably just saying, don't you know I'm descended from gentry? Yeah. Do you really want to do this? So with Shelley out and about, and Claire writing increasingly desperate letters to Byron, Mary filled her time by attending lectures and working on her novel. She had no friends to turn to, her father still wouldn't acknowledge her, and her only news from home came in the form of letters from Fanny, who wrote to complain that her meager connection to the outside world, the aunts she had stayed with two years before, would have nothing to do with her in the wake of Mary's elopement. So she's getting guilt-tripped from one sister, the other pregnant, desperate sister is just, like, in a fury of letter-writing. Percy is off doing Percy things. So Mary is alone, um, and she's also getting messages from Godwin through Fanny, demanding money from Percy, but not acknowledging anything else. So Godwin will talk to them in that he feels that Percy promised him something that he's not getting but he doesn't care about having a grandchild or interacting with his daughter. Yeah. Little did anyone realize how rough things were for Fanny at this point. Although as self-declared intellectuals, they probably should have noticed something. Fanny wasn't really taking her step-parents' side against her sisters, although that's what Mary and Claire and Percy liked to think. She was just trying to survive. She even asked Percy at one point, bumping into him at London while he's there and everyone else is in Bath, if she could come live with them. But Percy, though he'd been excited about that very idea in the past, rejected her request. Possibly because they were trying to keep Claire's pregnancy a secret, but we don't really know. Okay, so this is the point at which that contact warning that we've been giving at the beginning of the episode and previous episodes really comes into play. So I'll go back and insert a clip telling you how far to skip ahead if you, yeah, if you're affected by particularly discussion of suicide, um, yeah, skip ahead for this bit. So skip about three minutes now. On October 8th, 1816, Fanny left 41 Skinner Street for good, mailing a letter to Mary and Percy and one to Godwin. She felt stuck felt like there would never be more to life than having to keep her head down and appease people in a family that had never really felt like hers in the first place. Percy and Godwin, receiving the letters, searched Bath and Bristol trying to find Fanny. Percy caught her trail eventually, but too late. He found Fanny in Swansea on October 11th. Or rather, he found her body. She placed a metaphorical do-not-disturb sign on the door and overdosed on laudanum, explaining in a note that her purpose was to end the life of a being whose birth was unfortunate, and whose life has only been a series of pain to those persons who have hurt their health, endeavouring to promote her welfare. Which is desperately heartbreaking, because no one has been trying to promote her welfare. No, she's being so generous to a family that's basically told her over and over again, through action and word, that she's just a burden. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So Percy sets about immediately to protect Fanny's identity, not so much to protect her, I think, as to protect the family's reputation. 
destroying her signature on the note and um, making sure that nobody around knows who she is, actually. And it's at this point that Godwin breaks his vow not to speak to Mary. He writes her a letter saying, quote, Go not to Swansea. Disturb not the silent dead. Do nothing to destroy the obscurity she so much desired. End quote. So they have her buried in a pauper's grave to preserve the obscurity. And, I mean, part of me wonders if it's respecting her yeah. wishes, because she did take these steps to sort of not leave a mess for her family and to kind of go out obscurely, but at the same time, it's easier for them too, right? If they just let her vanish. Yeah, at the same time, those letters that she sent clearly indicate that she wanted them to know what happened. Yeah. So Godwin and Mary Jane, continuing along tradition, <laughs> blame Percy, uh, and to some extent Mary, for Fanny's suicide. They cite her hopeless, unrequited love for him, which may or may not have ever been a thing. Mary and Percy, in turn, blame Mary Jane, uh, and Claire doesn't seem to care enough at all to blame anyone, and she's wrapped up in her own sort of little drama anyway. And so the months go by in grief and bitterness and squabbling. Mary, as she will continually throughout her life, seeks solace in her work, continuing to workshop her writing and Percy's writing whenever Percy is together with her in Bath. December brings just more bad news. On the 15th, Percy got a letter from his friend Thomas Hookham. It seems like he only has friends called Thomas. Maybe that's a criterion for becoming friends with him. <laughs> um, on which flippant note, he, yeah, he receives a letter from his friend saying that Harriet had jumped from a bridge into the Thames and her pregnant body had been discovered on the shore. Did Mary wonder, in the aftermath of these deaths, whether Percy would drive her to such lengths one day? We can't know, but there does seem to be a lot of the women in Percy's life don't end up very well. Yeah. Harriet's death left the fate of Percy's children, Yante and Charles, up in the air. Harriet's parents wanted custody, but so, after years of neglecting the children, did Percy. So a legal battle was brewing. And to give himself an edge, Percy decided it was time to get married. Leaving William, baby William, if you remember, with Claire, Mary and Percy headed to London for a quick ceremony. And though eager biographers make much of the romance of the event, the facts aren't really romantic at all. Percy wrote to Byron, explaining the whole thing was, quote, a measure of convenience, end quote, and wrote to Claire thanking her for, quote, not expressing much of what you must feel, the loneliness and low spirits which arise from being entirely left, end quote. So his bride-to-be is not first and foremost in his mind um, at all. Mary, for her part, didn't even bother to record the correct date in her journal, noting that the ceremony happened on December 29th, instead of the day it actually occurred, December 30th. Although, like, getting it one day off is not, like, I think we've all done it, so who knows. But Godwin and Mary Jane attend the marriage ceremony as witnesses, deigning to be part of the young couple's lives again, now that everything is supposedly proper. So fast forward to January 12th, 1817, 
Claire's baby, Clara Allegra Byron, is born. Mary discovers that she is pregnant yet again and is super depressed to still be stuck with Claire. So she joins Percy in London, where Percy has been staying with writer, editor and political activist Lee Hunt and his family. Ironically, the family dynamic in the Hunt household was strikingly similar to that in the Shelley household. Hunt's wife's sister lived with the family, and there were rumours about Hunt and the sister. In fact, while Mary was staying with them, the sister attempted suicide in a pond on the property. This sent Mary brainstorming about her own situation and ways to help Claire achieve independence of her and Percy. First and foremost, Claire would need a clear reputation, which meant not being a single mother. Could they manage it so Allegra seemed to be a child they'd adopted into the household? And while mulling over that question, Percy's custody case proceeded apace. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> I'm doing doggerel and I'm talking about an actual poet. Hooray. <laughs> um, things weren't looking great for him, and really, they shouldn't be looking great for him, to be fair. So he tries to destroy Harriet's credibility, even though she was dead. Like, have you no boundaries, Percy? Another great move from Percy. Yeah, yeah. So he tries to make a lot of the fact that she's pregnant when she commits suicide. Um, basically, like, she cheated on me, She her, her family shouldn't get the kids, blah, blah, blah. Even though he's been cheating on her all this time. The court didn't care. I think luckily, uh, and awarded custody to Harriet's parents. So we don't really hear about uh, Yante and Charles at all anymore. Um, I hope that their home with Harriet's parents is a happy one. I assume that it will have been happier, or that it would have been happier than the home they would have found with Percy and Mary. Although Mary was really kind of excited about the idea of welcoming more children into the home. Um just because of future events, which we'll get to soon. Yeah. But Percy is crushed by the loss and um, schemes about kidnapping his own children for a bit. Uh, thankfully, yeah. does not do that. So after this, Percy decided to quit London, buying a house in Marlow. They named it Albion House. The whole family moved there for a while, and the large Hunt family came to visit as well. In part to set Mary's plans for Claire's daughter Allegra into motion. Um, and while all this is going on, Mary finishes a fair copy of Frankenstein. It had taken her nine months to write, between June 1816 and March 1817, and six weeks to edit. Mary and Percy set about trying to get it published. Two houses in, pass on it before, in August of that year, Lackingtons agreed to do a small run. Now, Lackington's was not a prestigious publisher at all, but significantly, Mary's contract with them allowed her to keep the copyright and a third of the profits, which is, at least in terms of the copyright, really pretty good yeah. for that period. Because a lot of the time, publishers would be like, hey, have 25 pounds, I'm buying the copyright, and then something would become a bestseller, but the author would never see another penny because they had sold the copyright. Yeah. So... It's, yeah, it seems quite rare that she's actually allowed to keep the, or able to keep the copyright. Yeah. I should mention, too, that she publishes it anonymously because they think it will sell better without her name. Mary wastes no time on starting her next project, A History of a Six Weeks Tour, which is a fictionalised rendering of her and Percy's elopement. And Lee Hunt's friends agreed to publish it. Then, on September 2nd, 1817, Mary gave birth to a girl called Clara. 
exactly 175 years before a certain idiot was born. That's me, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) And that's a good place to take a break. Yep. When we get back, we'll talk about what happens next. Welcome back. So, A History was published in November of that year, but only Percy's name appeared on the cover, even though Mary wrote pretty much all of it. So Percy contributes to two whole letters. In January of the next year, 1818, Frankenstein is published anonymously. And sort of back backtracking a little bit, so uh, just to give you a sense of what Percy's doing while... Mary is finishing the book that will change the science fiction world as we know it. Um, while Mary was pregnant and also managing Albion House as the woman of the house, um, and finishing Frankenstein and writing a history, Percy was leisurely wandering about the place, lounging around, contemplating nature, and writing The Revolt of Islam which he finished on September 20th, right after Clara was born. So he dedicated it to Mary with the following lines. So now my summer task is ended, Mary, and I return to thee, mine own heart's home, as to his queen some victor knight of fairy, earning bright spoils for her enchanted dome. I don't know why I included that. Um. That seems... Like, that's really nice. A, Mary has had her own multiple summer tasks. Mm-hmm. And B, by October 1817, so just maybe a month after Clara's born, the tranquil peace that had settled on the household begins to dissipate. Clara and Percy were getting awfully chummy again when Mary tended to her newborn daughter and her toddler son. Percy decided to take Claire and Allegra, to whom we'll refer from now on as her nickname Alba, to London, leaving Mary behind. So Mary suggests maybe they can see if Byron potentially wants to look after his kid after all. No, he didn't. He's too busy living the bachelor life in Italy. Eventually, Percy brings Mary up to London, uh, where he's still constantly dodging creditors who he never ever intends to pay. Let's just be clear about that. Never. (laughs) Um, And Frankenstein comes out to the world with negative reviews, mostly. People are um, disgusted by it or shocked by it, um, at first, anyway. And then Revolt of Islam comes out to nothing. Crickets. So, I mean, negative reviews are better than just, like, total neglect, right? (laughs) Percy's consumption flares up right about now, and given his declining health and the fact that it seems like all of this work has been for nothing for both of them, they start thinking about leaving England again. 
Yeah. And so for the next several years, there's a sort of whirlwind of travel that we'll sort of skip through bits and pieces because it's a lot of a lot of the same, just in different locations. Yeah, so in the beginning of 1818, Shelley writes possibly his most famous poem, Ozymandias, as they prepare to travel. This is the one you might have heard referenced in Breaking Bad. So, Oh yes, yeah. Yeah, they, it's brought up every so often. <laughs> Constantly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty good. The, just the high drama of it. And if you want to hear Brian Cranston just reading it, there's a video of that on YouTube. Maybe we can link to it. He's the he's he's the lead actor in Breaking Bad. For those of you who have not watched the show, yeah, it it's a good poem, and he does a great rendition of it. <laughs> yes. On March eleventh, eighteen eighteen, the family heads to Italy. They arrive on the 30th. So, you know, travel took a long time in those days. Yeah. Upon their arrival in Italy, Mary and Percy head off to find some lodgings, leaving Claire behind with the children. And for the first time in a while, they have three whole days to themselves. Now, I think the fact that this seems like an immense thing for them in a lot of the biographies tells you a lot about the state of their marriage, the fact that they're never alone, which, I mean, has kind of been clear already in our episodes on Mary Shelley so far. Um, but yeah, they get three whole days to themselves, and they sort of start to connect again, as they do anytime they're alone. But it's only three days, so, you know. Anyways, they're hoping, or at least Claire is hoping, that Byron will join them once they're in Italy, um, like they had the last summer, or two summers ago, yeah. But he refuses to join them, kind of sensing the trap, I guess. Yeah. But demands custody of Alba. Yeah, despite saying that he didn't want her. Oh well, now he does, he's changed his mind. So they re they reluctantly ship her back to Byron in Venice. I love that phrasing, <laughs> like they're putting her... I've realized they're not conveying her, you know, through the post. But. <laughs> Although, so, um, weird anecdote, but in the United States, not long after this period, it was possible to send children through the post. Oh, I think there's, um, oh, there's a dollop episode that's something about children being packed onto trains alone. I think into or out of New York. Yeah, yeah, but lit But literally on the post. Yeah, that probably would have... Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was the safest way to send them, you know. Male officials are <laughs> really responsible, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, we all know how good Anthony Trollope was. <laughs> um, yeah, so they reluctantly send Alba off to Byron in, in Venice. And then they, sort they head off to Livorno to visit um, Mary Wollstonecraft's old friend, Mariah Reveille, who, if you recall, in um, part one of this episode, is the person who nursed Mary back to health as a baby in the days after her mother's death. And um, this is not the only Wollstonecraft friend who will crop up this episode. So Wollstonecraft has friends scattered all over Europe, and they are loyal to her, even this long after her death, and will constantly be sort of like 
I don't know, like a, like, deus ex machina, <laughs> um, lending Mary a hand when she most needs it. <laughs> so the party settles down near to where Mariah Ravelli is. Um, if you're making a drinking game out of this, drink every time someone twists their ankle, because now Claire is going to. <laughs> that means that Mary and Percy have some time alone for their evening walks. So it's not for three days, but maybe it's 30 minutes here and there. Great, good enough. So they stay there for seven weeks until news comes from Alba's nurse that reaches them and that pulls Percy and Claire to Venice. Meanwhile, Clara is getting sick with a fever and she gradually grows worse. Yes. So Percy uh, rushes off to Venice with Claire in tow um, and he's gone for a while and then writes Mary with an urgent letter instructing her to come at once. Um, Now... A little bit of background on this urgent news from Alba's nurse is that um, she says basically it's not safe for her there with um, safe. I mean, she is applies that it's not safe for Alba there with Byron. Um, but uh, we'll kind of tease out what's possibly really happened. Probably really happened. I'm going to say because yes, I believe women when they say these things. Um, in a little bit, so we'll put a pin in that. But um, in Venice, or its sort of close uh, proximity, Percy has devised a lie telling Byron that Mary is waiting to take Alba on the spot, um, and, like, kind of glossing over the fact that Claire is there at all. So Mary agonizes over whether or not to leave because Clara is sick, and really, um, travel is not considered great for sick people, especially the very young and the very old. Uh, so she's worried that she's putting her daughter's life on the line by going, but she's also worried that Percy won't forgive her if she doesn't come. So she ultimately decides to pack up and go. Byron has, in the meantime, allowed Percy and Claire to stay at Este, the castle, uh, a castle sort of, I think... 20-ish miles outside of Venice or something like that. Um, and Mary arrives to find Claire and, Ale- and uh, Alba reunited. But her own daughter, Clara, is slipping in and out of consciousness as a result of the trip. Byron suggests that they consult his personal physician in Venice. Just over a month after Clara's first birthday, Mary sets off for the doctor with Clara. That's a 10-hour trip, so it's not nearby. Um, by the end of it, Clara's having convulsions. Between the time that they check in and Percy brings the doctor, Clara sadly passes away. Mary understandably withdraws into herself, though Byron tries to distract her with transcribing work. So this is the second child she's lost already, and um, she's 21 years old. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot at any age. So the morning party heads back to Naples without Alba, because apparently Byron was just letting them visit. They bring the nurse with them to be Toddler William's nurse, who she was nursing originally. They had just sent her with Alba when Byron demanded her before. So they arrive in Naples in December of 1818. And they stay there until February 27th, 1819. A kind of dysfunctional and grieving group. 
on that day, February 27th, 1819, Percy does something strange. And this is how Gordon describes it. Quote, he was a cheesemonger and a hairdresser as witnesses. He registered a baby at the town hall in the Chiara district. He said the child was his, but to this day, no one has been able to identify this baby or her real parents. The information Shelley entered into the official record is fascinating, but contradictory. The child's name was Elena Adelaide. She was two months old. She was, he claimed, the legitimate child of his wife, Maria Padgerin. He put Maria Padgerin's age as 27, when his own Mary was just 21. The interesting part about this detail is that the only person in the Shelley entourage who had reached such an age was Elise. So theories abound. Was she a foster child? Was she his child by Claire? Was she his child by Elise? Was she Elise's child by Byron? Or Elise's child by somebody else? Um, Not long before this, she had been married to one of the footmen who was traveling with their party. But the odds are that it was probably Byron, and given the panicked nature of her note and her refusal to stay in his service, she was probably raped by Byron. Um, the thought is that Mary, who was sort of in the tradition of her mother, um, constantly thinking about women's plights, asked Percy to register the child as his. But again, this is all piecemeal evidence. Yeah, and just to recap, Elise was Alba's nurse. Yeah, so Elise had been around with the family for a while. They, um, hired her for William. And then she was William and Alba's nurse. And then when Alba was sent away, she was sent with Alba to Byron. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. (laughs) A powerful man taking advantage of a woman who, you know, depends on him. Shocker. Never heard that one before. So having mysteriously registered a child in the local town hall, the, the party sets out on February 28th, for Rome. In April, Mary discovers she's pregnant again. In May, um, they commission a family friend, Amelia Curran, to paint portraits of the family. On the 14th of that month, Amelia begins painting baby William's portrait, and she warns the family that Rome is very bad for his health, especially with the summer coming. As if her words are prescient, a few days into sitting for this portrait, baby William starts getting sick. The doctor says he has worms, which, yeah, that's a thing. Uh, you know, drinking water was not necessarily a clean, cleaned in any way. Um, so that's possible. But the doctor says he has worms and he will recover. Yeah. A week later, he's still sick. And he just doesn't improve. On the 4th of June... He, like his sister before him, goes into convulsions, and three days later, he dies of malaria. Like his sister, he's buried in an unmarked grave. Actually, I don't think we mentioned that. Both Clara and William are buried in unmarked graves. You think the water would be... sorry. (laughs) The water would be a little bit better in Rome. I mean, water isn't going to be ideal anywhere at this point, but if you want to drink water from anywhere it's going to be Rome because of the aqueducts yeah well I mean it wasn't worms though so it was just a mosquito you know but yeah but that's a good point no yeah that kind of I guess 
complicates the idea that it was worms. It seems yeah, true. Unlikely to be there. I feel like you can probably. I should like call in my partner who is a microbiologist, but I think you can get worms from, you know, running around barefoot or food as well. So. Oh yeah, you absolutely can. Yeah. <laughs> There's also an episode of this podcast will call you about hookworms. <laughs> yeah. So um, don't do those things, listeners. <laughs> so understandably i have to we've just had a bit of a laugh but um understandably mary's depression is worse than ever they move back to livorno and claire who's been planning another visit with allegra or alba writes byron to cancel because she can't leave mary they try to go on as before reading together in italian and working on literary projects but mary can't break out of her depression desperate she writes to her father who advises her accurately but harshly quote Though at first your nearest connections may pity you in this state, yet when they see you fixed in selfishness and ill-humour, and regardless of the happiness of everyone else, they will finally cease to love you and scarcely learn to enjoy you. Listeners, if you know someone who's experiencing an episode of depression, do not tell them that. Don't tell them that stuff. It's not helpful. Sorry, William. Poor parenting. Even if it's true and Percy is an unreliable poop head... (laughs) Um, in response to her grief, that's not going to help her. It's not going to prod her into like suddenly being happy again, right? Like mental health doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's only going to make you feel worse if people say, oh, everyone who did love you will stop loving you because you're sad. Yeah, yeah. The biographers try to sort of read this in its best light, maybe giving Godwin more credit than he's due, maybe not, who knows. But he's basically saying Percy's going to move on if you can't get past this. And, you know, you've been listening all along, listeners. You know that the odds are actually, yeah, in favor of that. That's not justifying at all him saying this to her at this very, very vulnerable point in her life. I mean, I think also, though, maybe we're we're approaching this from a modern perspective and maybe being a bit harsh because understanding of mental health wasn't what it is now. And even you know, 10, 20 years ago, it wasn't where it is now. So we shouldn't hold people from 200 years ago to our standards, even though I want to. Well, and there's there's a lot of sort of gender um, bias going into this too. Like, it's a woman's role to keep her husband happy, supposedly, in this period. And um, yeah, so there's a lot of that in his statement as well. Yeah. And to give him credit, Percy is struggling as well. Um, But as we know about Percy, he has difficulty seeing behind himself at the best of times. So both Percy and Mary feel, I guess, very alone. And whatever fragile connection they'd regained during their time in Italy so far was basically in danger of collapse. So in August, Mary does what has helped her get out of depressions in the past, which is starts a new writing project. It's a novel called Matilda. Upstairs, Percy's working on a new project too. It's called Sensi. Uh, they're almost dueling writing projects, both about sort of... Biographers use the term incest, which is maybe not great in our modern parlance because we take that to mean one very specific thing, but it's just sort of like a sliding scale. Like, it could mean what we understand it to mean in the 21st century, but it can also just mean really intense familial love. Um, And I think there's, like, a little bit of both meanings going on in both writing projects. But 
each writer is working through this grief and animosity toward the other through their characters. So there's like, you know, the character that they kind of identify with and the character they identify their significant other with. And yeah, um, they're working through some things very obviously with these projects. So as a side note, um, when Mary finally finishes Matilda, she sends it to her father for help getting it published, and um, he calls it disgusting, and basically puts it in a trunk and refuses to send it back to her. Thankfully doesn't destroy it, but um, ensures that it's not published until 1959. In September of 1819, they move on to Florence, so that they can be near their favourite doctor when Mary gives birth. You may have forgotten in all this time that she is pregnant again. And so that the doctor can check in on Shelley's consumption. On November 12th, Mary gave birth to Percy Florence. All of her other children had died and she would become the helicopter parent of all helicopter parents in Percy Jr.'s regard. Tiger Mum has nothing on (laughs) Mary Shelley. Yeah, and from this moment on, basically, there is one most important Percy in her life, and it's not the Percy she's married to. Understandably. Yeah, yeah. Because Big Percy, during this time, says the best way he can spend his winter is by flirting with his cousin, Sophia Stacy. So in January of 1820, the family moves to Pisa, leaving Sophia behind. Oh, cousin Sophia, you had better things to do with your time. Um, Percy and Claire start getting extra chummy again, again. So this goes on and off for the rest of this episode. And Mary feels left out. Probably that's a giant understatement, but we'll leave it at that. So an old friend, Mrs. Mason, um, intervenes on Mary's behalf at this time. So this is another friend of Mary Wollstonecraft's. Um, And she lives near Pisa, and they're visiting her. And she takes it upon herself to convince Percy and Claire that Claire should spend some time away from everyone else in Florence. Um, Not only does she convince them, she's like an enforcer. I wish I could go back in time and meet this woman because, like, when nobody else can make Percy do what needs to be done, she can do it. She's the MVP of the story. Yeah. (laughs) I'm impressed. Hashtag impressed. (laughs) Yeah, but unfortunately, despite having this time to themselves, Percy and Mary didn't revert to their former closeness. Percy just basically wasn't Mary's everything anymore. She spent a lot of time and attention on Percy Jr., and that grated on Percy. Because what's worse than your wife spending time with your literal infant baby? Really feel for the guy. Toxic masculinity strikes again. Yeah. So apparently, to deal with these emotions, he writes to Claire that they should run away together. Not in quite those exact words, but he did propose that they go to the Middle East together and just not tell Mary. She won't notice. (laughs) No. She's so busy with this dang baby. So they begin to fill their dysfunctional domestic life with guests and friends. It's going to be a never-ending party at the Shelley place, basically, from here on out. Um, Party in sort of a nightmare sense of the word. But, uh, so the first one of these guests is Percy's feckless cousin, Tom Medwin. Then, a 29-year-old Greek prince named Alexander Mavrocordato. The prince arrived in December, and Mary spent that winter learning modern Greek from him. And probably flirting, based on the records that we have left. Apparently, he was H-A-W-T, hot. 
<laughs> so she starts dressing up again, um, <laughs> taking more care of her appearance and um, kind of enjoying life. He is apparently enough to kind of make things seem a little sparkly again outside of Percy Jr. Um, but the prince heads back to Greece in April of 1821 because in the background here, the Greek war for independence is brewing. Meanwhile, Percy's found his own flirtation opportunity. Teresa Viviani, who is the 18-year-old daughter of Pisa's governor and temptingly for Percy identified as an capital O, capital W, oppressed woman, TM. <laughs> he started calling her Amelia and romanticising about her. And she, for her own part, set about seducing him and sending Mary rude, rude notes. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I misread that. As <laughs> she was sending Mary nudes. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it's so inappropriate. Uh, but it would have been great. <laughs> I just conflated the two words in my head. Oh. Anyway, no, they were rude notes and not that kind of rude straight-up aggressive. Um, Teresa's family finally intervened, finagling an engagement. As Teresa began preparing for her wedding, the luster of romance fell away. She was not an elevated being anymore, she's just a normal woman. So predictably, Percy's like, eh, you have to be a goddess to hold his attention, basically. Yeah, she doesn't need rescuing anymore. Yeah. One final group of, quote, friends, and I'm just saying quote because you'll see why. Anyway arrives that winter slash spring um, and bears mentioning because they'll be around for the rest of the episode. Uh, the Williamses, Jane and Edward Williams, came to Pisa in 1821 uh, to visit Medwin, actually. Um, and they sort of ingratiated themselves with the family. At first, Percy didn't really care, but Mary thought they were all right, so let them hang around. Um, Jane was pregnant with their second child out of wedlock, Jane had taken Edward's name as a kind of subterfuge, um, and as you will notice, their story is pretty similar to the Shelleys. Um, not only that they are flouting sort of the institution of marriage, but that uh, Jane had run away from an unhappy marriage at 16 and eloped to Geneva with Edward, and they'd been together ever since. But Jane, as opposed to Mary, was very, very conventional um, and apparently kind of shallow so Mary never quite got along with her. But somehow still, the couples moved in together, renting a house in San Giuliano, about seven miles out of Pisa. Edward pretty quickly gets on Percy's good side by telling tall tales about his sailing experience. Um, so Edward and Percy start doing lots of sailing, even though Percy has never learned how to swim. And uh, Edward does not really have the experience that he claims to have. So soon enough, they have a bit of a nautical misadventure, and Percy almost drowns. So this is sort of like weird real-life foreshadowing. These... Sorry. These schmucks definitely deserve each other, though. Oh yeah, definitely. <laughs> like Edward and Percy. Yeah. The classic two guys who have no idea what they're doing, but are just going, yeah, bro, I can do it, I can sail. And he's going, yeah, that's cool, I can swim. Just imagine Mr. Bean if he had a friend just like him, and they're just, like, going on sailing adventures. <laughs> That's Percy and Edward this year. Except with a bit more, like, hyper-masculine bravado. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
hypermasculine is probably the, the wrong word, but yeah. Hypermasculine in like a romantic period sort of way. Hyper, uh, yeah, hyper egotistical. Yeah. Let's just say that. So Mary actually starts get <laughs> Mary actually starts getting on better with Jane during this time. Maybe because they're both like sitting there wondering if their husbands are going to die <laughs> on the water. <laughs> I could imagine them just sitting there with a cup of tea, just laughing at their husbands. Not at their husbands potentially dying, but at their husbands being like, yeah, he's always like this. He always says he can do it, and mm-hmm. he's literally never done it before. Yeah. Watching Edwin and Jane together, Percy mourns the loss of romantic closeness with Mary. So he and Mary have been together for seven years at this point, and they still work closely together on writing, and still know each other better than pretty much anyone else. But the spark is gone. For one thing, Mary doesn't worship him anymore. Oh, no. Um, not to make... What's up with that, Mary? Yeah, not to make light of their marital dysfunction. I'm sure it was devastating, but they had some kind of unrealistic expectations for each other. Or Percy had unrealistic expectations for Mary, at the very least. For sure. Yeah, so lest we forget Claire and Alba and their uh, ongoing drama in the background... Byron has long since gotten tired of Alba. Surprise, surprise. But instead of returning her to Claire, he decides to place her in a convent. Claire starts writing Byron angry letters, lobbying for access to her child. So Byron decides to come see them in Pisa. And to help sort of, I don't know, keep things calm and civil, the Williamses put Claire up in the house that they'd rented in Pisa. So Claire's not staying with them. But Mary and Percy go visit Claire in Pisa. They kind of go back and forth for a while. And at first, the sisters get on better than they had used to do. It's been a while since they've seen each other. Mrs. Mason's advice had paid off, at least it seems to. Um, But then Shelley starts getting along with Claire a little bit better again, too. And uh, Mary's like, oh no, not this bleep again. So Mrs. Mason steps in once again, saying, uh, you know what, actually, come back to Florence right now. And, like, unbelievably, Claire does. Like, she leaves before Byron even gets there. She misses out on her chance to tell Byron off to his face because Mrs. Mason says so. (sighs) I love Mrs. Mason. (laughs) I'm just going to repeat it. Mrs. Mason is the MVP. Yes. So, uh, we put a pin in that. Nothing has been... Like, there has been no resolution reached regarding Alba at this point. So Percy, Claire's gone away. Percy responds to this by starting to flirt with, and somehow even worse, write poetry about Jane, and makes no attempt to hide this from Edward. Apparently at one point he slips a poem he's written about Jane under the door of the married couple's bedroom. What a creep. Yeah, and Edward just, like, writes about it in his diary, like, nothing weird has happened. He's like, got a poem from Percy, went sailing, ate beef for dinner, I don't know. <laughs> and they're joined by another person, Edward Trelawney, who has tales of adventure to distract Mary for a while. So he says he had been in the Navy, but he quit at 20 to travel, which is just, he had a gap year. <laughs> so this might all seem fun, or at least interesting, but the bleak reality is that Mary's in a house of people who don't like her. The Williamses think she's a nag and a party pooper. She doesn't like these, you know, 
Maybe she doesn't like these poems that he's slipping under their door and he, she doesn't like the nudes that <laughs> Jane's sending her. Sorry. <laughs> Again, that didn't happen. That was me failing to read. Um, <laughs> and Percy's actively looking for happiness everywhere but with her. It's beginning to seem a lot like things are broken beyond repair. And I'll just jump in to say that um, the main reason they think that she's a nag is that she's like continually being like really you're going sailing again did you forget you don't know how to swim and everyone's like Psh, it's gonna be fine <laughs> it is gonna be totally fine mild spoilers so on the 7th of february 1822 mary attends a ball with trelawney and over the next few weeks they start to have a fledgling romance Presumably, Percy knows about this and doesn't mind because he's got Jane to console him. Um, but it's hard to say because chunks of Mary's journal from this period are missing. But at about that time, Mary discovers she's pregnant again, and her romance with Trelawney, which is already fizzling out because she's starting to notice that he talks a really big game about himself, but there's really no proof that any of it is true, flatlines. So, the romance... Not, not anymore. Um, and FYI, Trelawney was playing the field anyway. He was not just interested in Mary, although he was happy to pass the time with her. So, probably dodged a bullet there. Yeah. And this pregnancy was really rough on Mary. She spends more and more time doting over Percy, trying to detect and get ahead of any signs of illness. To make matters worse, Clara starts dreaming that Allegra, or Alba, was dead. And these dreams, though logically granting the deaths of Mary's children in the same environments, were prescient. On 23rd of April, 1822, news reached them that five-year-old Allegra had died of typhus. And there's actually some fascinating... Um, there are some fascinating things that happen around Allegra's death, and particularly her burial, that Francis Milton Trollope gets involved in, Um so maybe I'll try and find a resource for that and link it in the show notes. In the wake of this news, the group, who'd been planning to summer in Spezia anyway, decided to head there early, joined by Claire. Um, the plan seems to have been that Mary and Claire would leave ahead of the rest so that Mary had a chance to break the news to Claire privately. But Mary didn't tell her. So they move into a villa <laughs> where... Mary and Percy not only claim separate bedrooms, but claim bedrooms on opposite sides of the house. And they just sort of go about business as usual. On May 2nd, they had a house meeting at Sans Claire to discuss how to break the news to her. And in what would otherwise be a very comical scene, Claire overhears this meeting and... Claire saves them the bother of having to figure out how to discuss the news to her because she overhears the meeting and just freaks the heck out. And she'd never feel the same about anything or anyone again. Later, she would write, quote, Under the influence of the doctrine and belief of free love, I saw the two first poets of England become monsters of lying, meanness, cruelty and treachery. Under the influence of free love, Lord B became a human tiger, slaking his thirst for inflicting pain upon defenceless women, who under the influence of free love, loved him. Death and disaster seemed to Mary to be hanging around in the air itself, and she was increasingly anxious about Percy's sailing plans. Um, she wanted to go back to Pisa, 
which was, I think, a little bit more landlocked. Pisa's, yeah, Pisa's yeah. inland. Yeah, um, but Percy refused, and he spent all of his time, when he was not sailing, with Jane. But although the rest of the party either truly felt or more likely pretended that everything was fine, and not only fine, but charming, jolly, and wonderful, Percy's health began to suffer. Um, he began to hallucinate. First, that he saw Alba's body floating on the waves, then about other things. He had trouble sleeping and started using laudanum, which did not help with the hallucinations, um, I'm sure. His side hurt, which he attributed to rheumatism, and he started to feel trapped and washed up. It seems that he might have started having suicidal thoughts. He stopped up on prussic acid, which is basically cyanide. And he began fixating on sailing and the sea. His notebooks were full at this time of doodles of boats. Maybe sailing was an outlet from what he was beginning to feel was an otherwise entirely painful existence. Yeah, which is kind of heartbreaking knowing what happens. But again, mild spoilers. On May 12th, the schooner that Percy's commissioned arrived. And a couple of weeks later, on June 16th, Mary, who is, as we said, pregnant again, Mary miscarried and actually nearly dies. So it's Percy who saves her by ordering an ice bath. But Percy starts having night terrors about the sea. News reached them that their old friend Lee Hunt was visiting Byron, and Percy decided to sail over to see them. He set out on July 1st with Edward in tow. Mary is still weak from nearly dying. This is, you know, two weeks after she's nearly died. She begs him not to leave her, um, but he does. And when he arrived, Mary sent a letter asking him to come back soon. He says he plans to be back by July 8th. But the 8th comes and goes, and there's no sign of them. Three more days go by, in which time people are becoming increasingly alarmed. And then they get letters from Hunt and Byron, which verified that Percy and Edward had in fact set off on schedule. But there'd been a storm that day. Mary and Jane travel frantic to Byron's place, hoping that maybe he's heard from them. They make their way to Livorno, uh, meeting Trelawney there, and he said that he'd seen the men set sail on the 8th. But no accidents have been reported by the local authorities, so there's still hope. So they headed back home, stopping at each port they encountered. At Via Reggio, they learned that a dinghy had washed ashore. It wasn't until July 19th that the worst was confirmed. Three bodies had washed ashore between Massa and Via Reggio, Percy, Edward, and a deckhand named Charles Vivian. The bodies were so decayed that they had to be identified by clothing and possessions. Explanations abounded from pirates to suicide, in the end, it's most likely that inept sailing, Edward's claims at seamanship notwithstanding, and poor design combined with the storm to make the boat a death trap. The government gave Jane and Mary lots of trouble about how the bodies could be buried. So even though Mary had firm plans about how she wanted Percy to be buried, which is in Rome next to their son William, she kind of caved in the face of bureaucratic pressure and let Trelawney handle the details. And Trelawney went super dramatic, like, darn Trelawney, like, <laughs> I don't even know. This is, like, 
next level extra. Yeah. Um, unknowingly replicating the creature's wishes for his funeral at the end of Frankenstein by organizing a seaside funeral pyre for the bodies. Um, the funeral itself took place on August 16th. Mary was not in attendance, though she demanded details and wrote them in journal, as well as writing an eight-page long letter to her old friend, Mariah Gisborne, another of Wollstonecraft's friends. Um, this is what she wrote. This is an excerpt anyways. Quote, The scene of my existence is closed, and though there be no pleasure in retracing the scenes that have preceded the event, which has crushed my hopes, yet there seems to be a necessity in doing so, and I obey the impulse which urges me. All that might have been bright in my life is now despoiled. I shall live to improve myself, to take care of my child, and render myself worthy to join him. So Trelawney mailed Percy's ashes to the British consul in Rome, making arrangements for them to be married there with a memorial. He also made arrangements for himself to be buried next to Percy, letting Mary know later that there might be room for her. And in case this has all seemed like it's taking up a long time, Mary, who would turn 25 in two weeks, was a widow. She is 24 years old when she is widowed. That is, she starts young, but that's so young. And I think it's easy to forget quite how young she is at this point. Yeah, yeah. She'd grown up in the eight years she'd spent with Percy. She'd become an author and a mother. She'd known joy and grief, peace and strife. She'd lived an entire life since her elopement at 16. And while Percy's friends competed to be remembered his, as his BFF, Mary turned in with taking care of her son and keeping her grief to herself. So, Trelawney, this is where it becomes next level extra, actually. <laughs> Trelawney had had Percy's heart removed and preserved. And in doing so, he, like, became the arbiter of Percy's afterlife, sort of, and social life, I don't know. So he deemed Lee Hunt Percy's best and dearest friend, sending the heart to him. And... Mary's, you know, got responsibilities going on, but this is a step too far. So she musters the energy to deal with this on top of everything else and asks Hunt for it. But Hunt claims she doesn't deserve it. Yeah. Um, there are reasons for this that we will get into in the next episode, but it seems that after Percy's death, all anyone remembered were the last sorrowful months that the couple had spent growing apart. And all of those friends felt completely comfortable taking appearances for fact and claimed that Mary had been cold and all but driven Percy to his grave. In a show of what we might generously read as friendship, Jane asked for the heart on Mary's behalf and Hunt relented. And remember last episode where we said we didn't anticipate having three episodes we're gonna go to four so join us next time for our final installment on the life of mary shelley where we explore mary's life after percy yeah so <laughs> we have a, another full lifetime of hers to cover basically yeah thanks for listening yeah thanks for listening everyone bye yeah, thank you goodbye Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, 
Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. The music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number no. 2 in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, and made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archive. <laughs>